0: A brief update, it's May the 12th, 2024, I've released just two episodes of this year, my father-in-law passed away in January, he bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years, rest in peace John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my
1: podcast. I am a very privileged person to have had this experience. Believe it or not, through all of this time and all of these years and all of the books that have been written about Michael Jordan, I would like you guys to know that you guys are the first guys who have ever inquired from me as to what the experience was like, and I was there the very first night when Jordan walked out in the West Foul Circle at Angel Guardian Gym and shook hands with Kevin Lockery before he ever touched a basketball. Probably that's one of the strongest memories that I have because I sensed in my mind, you know, this could be the beginning, the absolute beginning of basketball history right here. And I remember the warm handshake that Kevin and Michael had. Then Michael going out and doing his thing. It should be pointed out that Michael was not given the starting job. He had to earn it. He came off the bench in his first game in Peoria and scored 18 points in that ball game. And that was the last game that he had to come off the bench except for perhaps some injury situations. Otherwise, from that point on, I can say I broadcast the only game where Michael Jordan was not a starter. I always like to say that Michael got to play with me for a year at North Carolina. (laughs) I think it really helped him. Spectacular player from the beginning.
0: You can see right away, Jordan was going to be a big-time scorer.
1: And showed what an impact he was going to have on the league.
2: This is NB85, celebrating the 30-year anniversary of Michael Jordan's rookie season in the NBA. And now, your hosts, Adam Ryan and Aaron Steen.
0: Here we are, Aaron. We're up to our 30th and final episode of our NB85 series. How are you today, mate?
2: As always, brilliant. Thank you.
0: Good on you, mate. Great to hear. As we put a final bow on NB85, let's briefly reflect on what we've covered throughout this series. We began with the conclusion of Jordan's college career at North Carolina. We covered Team USA's 1984 Olympic trials, the Team USA training camp, and the lead up to and the 1984 draft itself, Team USA's pre Olympic exhibition series, and of course the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. Then we went on to chat about Nike's signing of Michael Jordan, the Bulls' 84 85 training camp, and also their preseason campaign as well. Over to you, mate.
2: We also did a full recap of MJ's regular season NBA debut versus the Washington Bullets. We invited special guest Sam Smith onto the show to discuss his recently released There Is No Next NBA Legends on the Legacy of Michael Jordan. We detailed plenty of news, notes and quotes to steal a line from the great NBA action from the NBA's 84-85 regular season. And in total, we recapped 16 of Jordan's games, which included his NBA debut and the 1985 All-Star Game. More recently, the NBA Playoffs, Rounds 1, 2, the Conference Finals, and the 1985 NBA Finals.
0: Here's a few quick stats, mate, just for those that are interested, which is probably nobody. However, <laughs> we'll still go through them. Including this 30th episode, we've racked up almost 22 hours of content. Just let that sink in for a moment. Episode 13, two game recaps. It was at Portland and at Clippers. That was our single longest episode at just over one hour and four minutes. And episode 29, the 85 finals recap, that was our shortest episode at around the 23 minute and 30 second mark.
2: One of the main things that had me excited to do this series when you first told me about it, Adam, was that my knowledge on the 85 Bulls was quite limited and I knew how much I was going to learn about the team in the research for the series That after 25 years of being a Bulls fan, I can still learn so much about a topic that I'm so ridiculously passionate about. is simply awesome, and you've got to love the internet.
0: Totally agree.
2: I now have a few new favorites who wore a Bulls jersey after getting to know this 85 squad a bit better. I already loved Orlando Woolridge, but even that has gone up a few notches now. Guys like Wes Matthews, Dave Corzine, and Joanne Oldham are now among my favorite Bulls of all time.
0: I've always been a fan of Dave Corzine back since the 1989 season when he was on the first game that I ended up recording on videotape, the shot against Cleveland. He's definitely been one of the favorites that we've followed throughout the series. Again, Juwan Oldham that you mentioned too, he's turned out to be one of my favorite players on this team too. I really empathize with Quinton Daly as well, just to name a couple of guys. On a personal note, mate, I just want to quickly thank each and every listener of this series. Anytime we receive feedback, whether that's been through my website via email, Twitter, Facebook, or any of the other social media channels. It's incredibly rewarding to get that.
2: To even have listeners is a bonus because <laughs> we're both sitting here talking about a topic that we could talk for absolute hours on. Evidenced by this is the amount of times that we both listen back to the episodes that we have put together, not because we love the sound of our voice or, as you've just mentioned, 22 hours (laughs) worth of our own voices. It's simply because the subject matter is so compelling to the both of us.
0: Yeah, it is. And this doesn't even take into account the many times that we've chatted in between as well when we've recorded and just talked NB85 topics ad infinitum. One last thing, mate, I want to thank you very much for your contributions to the series. I know the amount of research that I've put in at this end has been quite crazy, and you've done equal amounts at your end as well. So I want to thank you very much for contributing your time, to which you're earning absolutely zero dollars on, for being such a huge part of this series. So thanks again for doing that too.
2: It's not exactly work, is it? That's true. When you first came to me with the idea to do this series of a detailed breakdown, almost as it happened 30 years earlier, of MJ's rookie season I was pretty much blown away with how good of an idea it was right from the start. And to get on here and ramble on and talk about a topic that we both love so much, mate, I can only give you my appreciation for choosing me to take the listeners along for the
0: ride. I wouldn't do it with anybody else. I'm really thrilled that we've got to deepen our friendship even more throughout this entire series. and. As soon as I had the brainwave to actually do this series and cover it some 30 years after the event, then you were the first person I thought of. It's
2: brilliant that our best episode of the series is the last.
0: Before we wrap up the series and launch into our fantastic conversation that we had with a very special guest, Bill Hazen, a reminder, mate, that this journey is far from over. We're preparing for NB86 as we speak, a new series devoted to the 1985-86 season, MJ's tumultuous second year in the NBA and also a season that features that stunning Boston Celtics championship team. This episode, mate, will be the only in which our robotic voice, who we affectionately dubbed Robo, this is the only episode in which he doesn't appear. It's with a heavy heart that we want to uh, <laughs> send our condolences to an imagined robot. What did you think about the inclusion of him in the episodes, mate? Because it took actually quite a bit of work to insert those into each episode, I must say.
2: Robo was a key contributor to Life threat series, and if you think that me not being paid at all to spend countless hours researching and doing this episode, thought for Robo, he didn't even enjoy it.
0: <laughs> uh, quite fascinating that we're actually referred to a, an imagined, <laughs> an imagined robot voice, but he was paramount for those first 29 episodes. I'm not sure if he'll make an appearance in NB86 going forwards, but. Depending on any feedback we might get about this episode or this series, we'll see how that develops as we move into the 85-86 recaps, mate.
2: We're actually in very heated negotiations with a few of his family members who (laughs) saw the blood in the water and want to replace him for MB-86, so we'll have to (laughs) wait and see how
0: that goes. All will be revealed in the goodness of time. Make sure you do stay tuned to the website inallairness.com or, of course, via our social media channels. All the links are in the episode show notes. I look forward to NB86 already, and without any further ado, mate, let's get into the final episode of NB85. Our guest today has well over 30 years of radio and TV broadcast experience. His goal, which is encapsulated perfectly on his website bio, is, and I quote, to capture the essence and excitement of sporting events and relate them to the audience, end quote. He was the play-by-play man for the Chicago Bulls during Michael Jordan's 1984-85 rookie season, We couldn't be more pleased to welcome him to the show. Bill Hazen, thanks for
1: joining us. Adam, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you. And AJ, great to visit with you. It's an amazing age that we are in where a couple of guys from Australia could be leading this conversation and we could all gather together in the internet space with the great connections that are possible today. Uh, To be able to share some wonderful experiences, just as if we're sitting in the living room together having a nice conversation. How nice.
2: It's very exciting to be able to speak to you today, mate. And when Adam just mentioned the words, was the play-by-play man for the Chicago Bulls during the 1985 season, at that exact moment, the excitement level just went up about two or three notches. (laughs) So, yeah, it's really, really good to be able to speak to you, mate.
1: Well, I'll tell you, it was a great break for a young guy I was born and raised in Chicago and I remember not only the two teams that failed here you know Chicago itself had somewhat of a checkered past as a professional basketball town this was a hockey town and in many ways it's still regarded as a hockey town the Chicago Blackhawks were dug in the Chicago Bulls were trying to come on the scene but before them two teams had failed the Chicago Stags were the original pro basketball team in this town. That didn't work. It was repackaged as the Chicago Zephyrs, and that's a team the first team that I ever listened to as a kid growing up. That team left for Baltimore and is now the Washington Wizards. And uh, then we went without pro basketball for a while, and then Chicago was an awarded an expansion franchise. And I watched the team's very first game as a teenager in St. Louis, the Bulls playing in St. Louis against the old St. Louis Hawks. Guy Rogers had a great game that night. The Bulls won the game. Johnny Kerr was their coach. And I have to tell you what a thrill it was to later look to the side and see him as my analyst. (laughs) What
0: a world this is. Magnificent.
2: You've started things out right up about here, so the expectations now for the content, for the remainder of the conversation, are going to be sky high, mate. That's an absolutely great way to start off the conversation. Thank you.
1: You know, you're looking at a guy who had an awful lot of breaks in this business. I worked hard, but you don't get anywhere in this profession if somebody doesn't believe in you. And I was very, very fortunate. When I went after the bull's job, I was out of work. I had worked at KMOX in St. Louis and had come back to Chicago after a very frustrating experience. I had done the University of Missouri TV games when they had Stepanovich and Sunville, those two great players, and that was a top five rated team. But there was no future there. It wasn't enough to hold a job. So I went back to Chicago, and I kind of slugged it out and managed to get the Bulls job. There was a It boiled down to me and a network broadcaster in L.A., and somehow I was able to beat him up. So there's a lot of good fortune uh, in life and a lot of hard work, too.
2: Now, Bill, from 1983 through 1985, you were the play-by-play man for the Chicago Bulls alongside the legendary Johnny Kerr. What are your memories of working with Red, and can you share a memorable story with us?
1: Johnny and I were not particularly close. We had a professional relationship. It was a good relationship. Uh, Johnny and I spent a lot of time together. We were of different eras, and I was new to the scene, but I would often remind him that I watched the very first game that he coached, and, uh, as the coach of the Bulls, and he was named coach of the year in the NBA that rookie year. The thing that I remember and that impressed me the most about Red was one night before a game, his son was going to be playing in a college game at, I believe, North Dakota. His son was six feet eight. I had gone out to see him play at a Northwest suburban, uh, high school in the Chicago area. And they thought he had potential to play at the college level, and he did. And I remember Red just taking a moment, sitting there, and I was sitting next to him, and he just bowed his head and, you know, just offered a prayer that his son do his very best. You know, you could sense the love that he had for his son. That is the single most impressive thing uh, that Red ever did. Nobody ever saw things like that, but uh, that impressed me. Big time.
2: Which of his sons was that who had the chance to play in college or did play in college?
1: You know what? I'm not sure. I didn't know the rest of the family. I okay. had seen his son play, and I am struggling. I know it's the one who went on to college yep. at, uh, I believe it was North Dakota or North Dakota State.
2: I'm good friends with one of his sons, Matt, Matt Kerr. I met Matt through social media and online, and I've been... Correct. To Chicago a few times in the other last few years and I'll catch up with Matt every time I go over there and yeah it's usually at a Bulls game but I'm lucky enough to be able to call one of Red sons a friend of mine
1: good very good and maybe he can tell you the rest of the story that of everything that I saw about him that really impressed me I liked that side of Johnny Kerr quite a bit
0: moving on to some more information about the Bulls here Paul Westhead was the coach of the Bulls in the 1983 season and the team went 28-54 and and Chicago had cycled through three coaches the previous season. Jerry Sloan, Phil Johnson, I think, just for one game and then Rod Thorne finished off that 82 season. How was your first season calling games with the Bulls in 83 and what do you perhaps remember most about that first season on uh, broadcast duties there, Bill?
1: Yeah, indeed, and that was Kevin Lockery's first year. That's when the transition from Paul Westhead to Kevin Lockery took place. Westhead was a fast-break coach. He believed in that very strongly. Uh, Kevin had some other ideas. The Bulls were going to be running a lot of motion and a lot of other stuff. Kevin had a very good offense. He surrounded himself with some very knowledgeable coaches. He had Bill Blair who is one of the best minds in basketball. I think he had Freddie Carter, of course, who was an outstanding player in his own right, also became a head coach. And the least known of that group was a guy by the name of Mike Tebow. Mike, who handled a lot of the video, uh, was the young pup, if you will, among that coaching group. But he, too, went on to an outstanding pro career, and he did so as uh, a coach in women's basketball. So he also cut his own reputation and had great success. Uh, this was a good coaching staff, and Kevin was a very, very good coach. For me, it was a thrill to get the job even though I knew that things had been somewhat turbulent but when the organization decided to make the investment in Kevin Lockery bring him in and Kevin was one of the hottest coaches in the league at that time and uh, they paid a lot of money they got him in and things uh initially they started to make some move to change things but in that first year the team won only 26 games but it didn't matter to me as a rookie Bulls broadcaster, I was so thrilled I wouldn't have cared if they went 0-82. <laughs> I was just loving every moment of the experience, and I called the games as best I could and had a lot of fun with it. We tried to capture the excitement of the game, which, of course, is what this business is all about. And, uh, of course, you'd love to see the Bulls do better, uh, but it was still a wonderful rookie year for me, uh, particularly being back in my hometown. You
2: mentioned capturing the excitement of what was happening on the court in front of you. I think that having heard a few of your games from this 85 season, Bill, you certainly did a fantastic job of that. So you can be congratulated on that.
1: Well, thank you. The interesting thing about the games that I televised and what is really the tough part of it really was the cable channel which carried the games, which was originally called Sports Vision and then morphed into Sports Channel, that system couldn't be seen in a lot of places. I couldn't pick it up at my home in the city. It was totally invisible within the city of Chicago. There were limited suburbs. The Sports Vision operation was a pay channel, and it was supposed to go over one of the UHF stations here that was scrambled at night. Then, when Sports Channel got it, they placed it over a number of participating cable systems. They were all in the suburbs, and hardly anybody could pick it up. So, actually, the the great irony of this is that a whole new generation is discovering this work with the assumption that everybody actually saw these games as I called them. But the truth of it was that very few people did. And unfortunately, in the process, it didn't serve me very well because a lot of people heard my name and they, oh, yeah, there's this guy, Bill Hazen he's doing games. But they hadn't seen the product. So it was difficult to build the relationship within the market that I had hoped for. So I wish at that time the cable industry had been a little more mature, but it wasn't.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, as well, uh, that also led to the fact that not many games from that 85 season Jordan's rookie season exists on VHS or DVD I'm a collector of games uh, particularly Jordan and there's only about 22 23 games perhaps from that rookie season that are available in the trading hobby so they're quite scarce barely a quarter of his rookie season even exists so to be able to have this chance to chat with you Uh, Based on the website bio for yourself, you called over 50 games of Jordan in his rookie season. Yes. It's incredible to have this chance to be able to speak to you because you've witnessed things that he's done that only the people who were there in attendance would have seen, albeit for a few people that have these games on, uh, on DVD. So it's quite remarkable in that fact as well.
1: Well, it was a great thrill. I can tell you that. And unfortunately, in that era, the cost of videotape was very expensive. And Sports Channel, which was losing money, was on a very limited budget. And so a lot of the original recordings of Jordan's games were erased hmm. for the following year. I remember when the order went out, it was really a, an unbelievably tragic thing. Unbelievably. However, a second copy was supposed to have gone to the league. I'm not sure if that was the case in all games, but supposedly... That's how it was supposed to work. Also, of course, being associated with those games and not being sure what my future would be with the team in the long haul, I wanted to have some video also. So I went in and actually recorded several of those games myself. I believe that I have perhaps the best copy of a number of those first season Jordan games, which I took directly off of their master copy.
0: Fantastic. Well,
1: it's great to know that at least some of those games have survived
0: because within a trading hobby, some of those Jordan games are particularly rare and very scarce, so it's uh, excellent to know that they belong in some good hands at least.
1: Well, they always say, uh, Bill, you did Jordan's games when he had hair. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually true. So, yes, he did, and boy, was he something to watch. I also remember, guys, that very early... After we had watched practice for a short period of time, we knew those of us who were watching practice getting over to Angel Guardian Gym, which is just a couple of miles from uh, where I'm speaking with you now. And my apartment at that time, my home now was right in the area. So it was very easy to go over, very easy to watch the team practice. I watched Jordan for a couple of practices and the first time, first time. He came out, and he was a holdout. The first time he got on the floor, there were only a handful of us there. No other broadcasters, no media of any kind. There might have been a writer or two. That was it. Mm -hmm. But it was one of these things where after you watch the first practice, you're walking out of there (laughs) saying to yourself, did I just see what I think I saw? You know, I'm 33 years of age and I'm trying to figure it out. I'm not the greatest basketball mind out there. I know a lot more now, but I had never experienced anything like this. The coaches even had kind of a muted smile, you know, kind of like a Cheshire cat. You know what I mean? (laughs) As if they had caught something. I think they knew. But for the rest of us, it would be as if you were Sitting and a friend of yours suddenly painted the Mona Lisa and you looked at it and boy, that looks awfully good. But you probably walk out and say, is that as good as I think it was? And that's exactly what this was like. Nobody was really sure he was ripping our guards like you wouldn't believe the cushion that players gave him because of the genuine fear that he could drive. And you know, a player senses right away. How quick you are as an opponent. And I saw our smallest guards were giving a huge cushion. They were pulling way back. And I thought, I've never seen this before in a player. So I wasn't really sure. But then when I came back the next day and he does the same thing again, I drove over to Sports Channel and walked into Jim Corno's office, who was operating the franchise and I Sat down with Jim, a very likable guy, sat down with him, and I said to him, look, Jim, you probably should be aware of something. There's something going on at Angel Guardian Jim. I'm telling you, this guy is going to be a lot better than anybody thinks he's going to be. This guy is going to revolutionize the big guard position. I'm seeing stuff that I've never seen before in a player playing a four spot. So, I went ahead and I knew that on the Bulls opening night there was a conflict and Sports Channel had to choose one of two games whether it was going to be a Blackhawks game or whether it was going to be a Bulls game and I told uh, Jim I said Jim you know cuz they had penciled in that they were gonna do the Blackhawks game that was on the schedule and I told him look even if you have to delay this You really should do this game. This game has historical implications that are big time, and uh, they decided not to do it. And so, therefore, on the first regular season game, I sat next to Jim Brinson of WDCA Television in Washington, D.C., and I twiddled my thumbs as Michael Jordan made his regular season debut. Of course, I had done Jordan's very first game, which was in Peoria at Carver Arena, uh, part of the Peoria uh, Civic Center complex. Uh, but, you know, we knew what was going to happen. By this time, we had seen enough where we knew what was going to happen, but it really hadn't gotten to the upper echelon of the broadcast management. And so we have no local telecast of Jordan's first game.
2: You speak about the historical significance of all this, his first regular season game and whatnot. I went to the Peoria Wikipedia page about six to 12 months ago, and there was no mention of the fact that Jordan had played his first game in a Bulls uniform in Peoria. So I made my first ever Wikipedia edit and added that into the Peoria Wikipedia page because, as you said before, historical implications and like it's quite amazing that you saw that that early on and you went and spoke to sports channel about airing that first game because it's something that adam and i have spoken about several times in our mb85 podcast series is that people would have seen mj play in college and at the olympics and, and saw the flashes of brilliance but when he made it to the nba and did what he did yeah, we've seen him for twenty-five or thirty years, and yeah, and we know what he's like and his moves and what. But back then, it was all brand new.
1: Well, it was, and the thing is, there was a framework here. Nobody really knew for sure. In all honesty, nobody knew for sure how good Michael Jordan was, and that's because he came out of the North Carolina system and he played in a team concept in which his skills and his capabilities really didn't show he had a game that was tailored really for professional basketball but it wouldn't show at North Carolina then playing on the Olympic team with uh, Bobby Knight uh, it was pretty much the same thing so nobody really knew for sure what this guy was capable of doing and uh... there were some concerns even if the bulls were going to draft michael jordan as you may remember and there was uh... figuring that jordan uh... went third in the draft behind akim olajuwon and sam bowie portland took sam bowie in the number two spot because they already had clyde drexler and drexler was a similar size player played the same position was an all-star in the making, eventually became a Hall of Famer. And so everybody thought, well, Jordan may eventually end up as good as Drexler, but, you know, we already have Clyde. And Stu Inman eventually lost his job for that. Very, very unfortunate. But nobody could really predict until Michael Jordan got into a Bulls uniform and we started seeing him in practice and he was just slicing right through people. He'd go down the lane, he'd elevate, he'd dunk, he'd shoot from outside, he'd do the whole thing. As the old saying goes in the opera game, he'd sing tenor, he'd sing bass, he'd do the whole thing, he'd sell a popcorn. It was absolutely incredible, and he was an excellent defender. We saw him slicing up the Bulls' guards in practice, and we said, well, that's great, but is he going to be able to do that against Sidney Moncrief?" Of the Milwaukee Bucks the reigning defensive player in the league and of course he lit up Sidney fairly well now Sid was a great defender and it should be pointed out in his defense he was playing on one leg by the time Jordan got there so he was not healthy by the time Jordan came into the league and Sid was able to slow him down some but Michael could still score on Sidney Moncrief, so you knew that was the real deal. That was one of the big tests in that rookie season. How would Sidney Moncrief play him, and could he stop him? Two of the first three Bulls games in the 84-85 season were
0: against the Milwaukee Bucks. The second game of the season was at Milwaukee, and then the third game back home in Chicago, so Jordan's second regular season game, he lit up the Milwaukee Bucks for 37 points. And you mentioned Sid Moncrief. He had 28 points of his own. I'm just looking at the great basketballreference.com website now. Talking about, say, the first month or so of games that you were calling in that rookie season, there's some incredible play-by-play calls that you made, and one of the most notable ones that I'm sure a lot of people have heard over the journey has been the one where it was at the LA Clippers in late November. I'm going to try and play the clip. Can you see my screen at this stage? Yes, I can. Let's have a look. All right.
1: Great defensive effort by Jordan, who has it on the break. Driving all the way in. Oh! got an unbelievable ball he put it into the couch can you believe that well we saw one of the really great players right there
2: wow this wasn't a play in the middle of the second quarter or at the end of the first half this was a play that mj executed to seal the game for the bulls and i mentioned before about your enthusiasm when you're calling bulls games you were extremely enthusiastic watching this play there were certain plays during this season where both yourself and red are almost screaming into the microphone that's how excited you are as what's happened in front of you and your uh enthusiasm was very very evident as it's just another example of these plays that mj did in his rookie season that would have just completely blown you away
1: yeah, yeah, and it was also fresh at the time, A.J., uh, because nobody had ever seen some of the moves and some of the game-savvy that Michael Jordan had. So this was the first time around the block. It got to be a little bit more standard procedure after years and years <laughs> of this. But I can tell you doing it for the first time. Well, gee, I remember going to New York and... I was walking in the Madison Square Garden, and Al Albert, who is the brother of Marv, the younger brother, and a wonderful broadcaster, a guy I have a tremendous respect for. And I remember seeing Al, and he walked up to me and he said, boy, I really envy you. And he looked at, too, he says, to be able to broadcast a guy like this, yeah. it has to be a once-in-a-life experience. And, you know, it's an amazing thing. When I... Uh, Got to know Dick Mata a little bit in Dallas. Uh Dick had taken over an expansion team there, and I had been a big fan of Dick's for years, and I was working as a broadcaster there. And uh I remember uh, saying to Dick, uh, you know, I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I know your uh, pedigree and your background and everything, and I think you're a wonderful coach. And I remember him saying to me, you think I'm a good coach? Get me some players in here, and I'll show you how good of a coach I really am. Well, it's the same for broadcasting, fellas. Let me tell you you become one heck of a broadcaster when you're describing Michael Jordan running around and leaping through uh, air with no restrictions. Your site says in all airness, that's exactly right. He had a vertical game that was incredible. It's amazing how good of a broadcaster you. can be when you have something like that to watch
2: (laughs) we've actually seen quite a bit throughout the 85 season that apart from games against the the premier teams uh, of that season such as LA and Philadelphia that Chicago fans didn't exactly flock and fill Chicago Stadium despite what Jordan was doing on the court what do you think that was
1: I think it took time for the word to get around Chicago in its essence is essentially a hockey town there was a hugely dug in hockey market presence which was there during my early years though all of the great players bobby hall and stan mckeed and glenn hall and all of those great players that they had and uh... basketball was coming onto the scene late and had had uh, at that time had failed twice before So I think there was an attitude, particularly after the Mata years, when the team turned around and they had been down and had won only 26 games for Kevin Lockery his first year, they wanted to be shown. And the amazing thing was that even with that, it took a while for everybody to realize this. And let's remember, once again, I go back to that same point. A lot of the games that you're looking at now and saying boy if fans were seeing this how could they stay away well the truth of it is they didn't see it and that's why they stayed away there weren't that many games that were over the air on television some of his very best home games some of his best performances were at chicago stadium and it just took a while for the word to get around and for people to catch the same and go through the same experience that I went through the first two days in practice. Yeah. Where I was walking out of there saying to myself, Jeez, this guy looks great. I don't there must be something wrong with me. This guy looks unbelievable out there. I was thinking to myself, I don't know. I, I'm gonna have to think about this a little bit. <laughs> so when I came back the next day and he's slicing through people like their butter and I'm starting to think, wait a minute.
2: Justification
1: yeah and i really wonder if the city and it may be if pro basketball in general didn't have to go through that same kind of experience because there never has been a greater hidden gem in professional basketball than michael jordan the book on him was that he had all-star capabilities that's what the bulls people thought i remember asking rod thorn how good can he be and Rod's feeling was, we think he's going to be a fantastic player. We think he has all-star potential. We think he can get there a number of years. And you'd say, boy, that's tremendous. But even with that, nobody really was sure of what he actually would do. I don't think many people figured he'd lead the league in scoring right away as a rookie and turn in these spectacular games. And, uh, I mean, he was a guy who could rebound, who could assist who could shoot if necessary, could drive, slice, cut, pass off, had good vision, could do the whole thing, one heck of a defender, all as a rookie. And he just changed the nature of the big guard position. I don't think anybody anticipated that. How was your actual
0: preparation for games, Bill? And particularly when we're talking about this Jordan rookie season, what sort of things did you do in advance or how did you get yourself set for a game in terms of analyzing any stats or how did that sort of work?
1: Interesting you ask that. I started using computer technology to prepare for games during that season. Right. And in those days, that was even before DOS was dug in. So I had this (laughs) tiny little laptop and a little printer, and it ran on CPM, as they call it. A control program, something or other. (laughs) I don't know. And all you could do really was word processing. So you'd create a template that had information on it and then you'd print it out. And uh, what I did was I would uh, go down to the Bulls office the morning of the game and I'd get the game information as soon as it was run off. Then I'd go back and I would prepare, I'd load it into the computer. This is way, way back, and uh, then I'd go ahead and print that out, and I would update the stats and everything from game to game. So I had a bio on every player. The printout came on mailing labels for each player. Every player got a mailing label, and then as they came into the game, I'd press down the mailing label onto my scorecard, which was designed specifically to handle that, And so I could see not only uh, who was playing, but the order in which they came into the game. And I spent a lot of time in preparation. I developed my own system. I've come a long way since then. Now that's done in the form of a database, which I've designed a specific template for this. But I still use mailing labels, and it still has all the data on it. I still massage the data myself, and I get the information on the game. I pull what I want. Generally, what I want to be able to do, guys, is to be able to speak for five minutes nonstop about a player. And you might ask yourself, why in the world would that be what you'd want to do? Why not 10, you know, know, or whatever? The reason was that I wanted to be able to speak during injury situations when you have a player who is down, I did not want to attempt to be a doctor at the microphone and say, well, obviously, he's very seriously hurt, only to have him stand up and walk off the court with no problem <laughs> one minute later. <laughs> Believe me, if you've ever had that happen, you don't want to have that happen. Again. So I learned my lesson. I did, that was back in high school. I learned that lesson when I was broadcasting high school ball in Columbus, Indiana. So I thought, you needed about five minutes worth of information where you could talk about the player, tell the audience about that player without making any judgments on the injury of a player. I thought that was important, and, and that also would give, in in particularly in television, that would give everybody involved with the TV remote enough time to talk among themselves, determine what they wanted to do, and then go ahead and do it so I was kind of a stickler I guess you would say in terms of preparation I wanted the audience to uh, be aware of what was going on but most of it never made the air. eighty percent of it ended up on the cutting room floor because I only used that information which fed into the storyline of the game I never tried to impress anybody with how prepared I was it wasn't about my ego it was about being able to tell the story and where the story went I wanted information that followed or enriched or embellished the story so that's where I tried to go but yes uh, I prepared very hard for Michael we knew every night there was going to be a huge viewership uh, for his games and a great deal of interest so certainly uh my information was well tweaked and as i remember the hardest thing was trying to collapse all the information on him and get what you wanted onto the sheet i mean you could have filled a whole scorecard just with his information and nothing else
0: what a fantastic answer thanks very much for elaborating on that and obviously you were very well prepared and as you said just use the information that was relevant at the time so great to hear that um now the NBA chose some of your play by play descriptions for its promotional series. The NBA, it's fantastic. That great yes. campaign they had back in the, in the 1980s. I'd love to know your thoughts just on the fact that they used your commentary and that campaign really helped define the league as a fast paced and exciting game through those promotional ads. What, what did you make of that at the time?
1: Well, CBS had the television rights to the NBA at that time, and the league put together promotional announcements to air on CBS, and the campaign was known as the NBA. It's fantastic, and it was just great. Uh I was involved in four of those commercials, but the producer, and I'm so sorry, I've often tried to remember the person who produced these But he called me and said, we'd love to use a particular description that you did because we love it. And uh, they did. And it turned out, I still have it in my files here somewhere. It did not involve Michael Jordan. It involved a center by the name of Jawan Oldham. Hmm. who had played with the team during the 84-85 season. He was a big man. He was a shot blocker, rough around the edges, but, brother, he could block shots. Somebody drives to the basket. Oldham reaches back, swats it away, goes to another player. He takes a shot. Oldham blocks that one. And then a third one is taken, and he blocks that one. And I just came out of my seat and said, it's a trio, a trio of block shots. Then on the runout, the ball went to Jordan. He goes down to the other end and scores. The whistle sounds. The fans come to their feet. You hear your friendly announcer say, the fans have come to their feet. And the place is absolutely roaring. And I think the last part of it, then the guy says, uh, the fans have come to their feet. And the announcer says, the NBA. It's fantastic, and then you hear me saying, "Oh man!" <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fantastic. Well, I don't even mean to say fantastic, but that is fantastic.
1: <laughs> it really was. I was so honored. It was just terrific. I got an awful lot of calls from people who heard it, got a lot of calls from family members who finally believed I it actually amounted to something. <laughs> oh, dear. It was nice. After I had done the Bulls two years, a new ownership group came in and they broomed the place and a number of people lost their job rod thorn was the first the team had gone from twenty six wins to thirty eight wins in one season rod thorn was the first to be fired then kevin lockery got fired all of the other coaches got fired i had a contract uh... which had one more year to run so i was moved off of the bulls i have a special place in my heart for everybody who was there that first year, because they made an awful lot of right moves and got very little credit for it. They made the decisions regarding the draft, and the drafting of Michael Jordan was not a sure thing, nor was it a sure thing that Michael Jordan was the best person to draft. It was not as clear cut as it seems today. There were people that were asking questions. Nobody was really sure he was coming out of North Carolina. He looked good. There were some concerns among certain front office personnel and some other people around the league. That is long since forgotten, but that's the way it was at that time. There were even some college coaches who had doubts. I won't go into any details, but a very famous coach, extremely well-known, said, I love him. He's great, but he can't shoot. So, you know, there were some people who were uncertain about how he would play. The right decisions were made. The team took tremendous steps forward in that year. They went from 26 wins to 38 and made the playoffs. And for that, every one of those people lost their jobs. Mm. So I've always felt very badly about that. And I know that to a degree, Kevin and Bill and Mad Dog and Mike Tebow and uh, Rod Thorne, and all of those who had been involved with the team that first year, my privilege, also Jordan's first year, that is, uh, to be there. I know there had to be a special weight in their heart for them as they saw the team getting to be what they knew it would be in time, and they could see it, and it's unfortunate that none of them were around to actually be a part of it. And none of them got any credit for it, really. And that's too bad.
2: How was it explained to you when you were let go from your job in Chicago?
1: Well, the Bulls at that time were doing separate radio and television when I did them. In order to save money, the Bulls decided to simulcast. They had a very talented radio broadcaster by the name of Jim Durham. I'm sure you've heard, seen his calls on a number of things. He's very, very good. And I knew Jim, had known him for years. And, uh, Jim and I had even worked together on a game or two. I did color for him in a four overtime game at Portland. That was a game we worked together. We had a ball. And, uh, Jim unfortunately is no longer with us, but the decision was made to go ahead and simulcast on this. And so I was moved over into college ball. And, uh, it was a very emotional, very difficult time for me. Still a fairly young and just maturing broadcaster. And, uh you know, knowing what was going to happen, we all knew what was going to happen. And uh, what can you do? Uh, the owner calls it as he wants it. And that's the way it worked. So, uh, but I felt particularly badly for the coaches because they had worked very hard, accomplished a great deal. I felt badly for Rod Thorne, who I think is a great basketball mind. And uh, all of them were very, very kind to me. We were all a team. And uh so I felt badly. I was the young pup, but uh everybody was uh, very kind to me. I felt badly because uh I thought that uh, perhaps they deserve a little more than they got.
0: What did you make about the changes in Jordan's game, particularly given that you commentated him as a rookie and then you had the chance to, albeit from a remote position, commentate some games? He would have been back from his hiatus from baseball. Yes. So he would have been there in the 95
1: playoffs. I called the 9495 and I believe 9596. I did for two years with uh, ESPN. The basic difference about Michael Jordan is not really obvious. When you see him as a rookie, he is running, he is jumping, he is going over people, dunking. The rules of the NBA had changed to really favor Michael Jordan's kind of game. And it had just happened. In a short period of time before Jordan came into the pros, the charging rules changed. You couldn't line up under the basket and try to get a charge when Jordan was coming down from dunking a basketball, which would have been the standard approach. They weren't going to give it to you. Also, the zone defense rules changed, if you will, the illegal defense rules, as it's called in the pros. They redefined some of that, all of which played to a one and one game. The other part of it was that for the first six years of Michael Jordan's career, he never lifted a weight. It's hard to believe that. He never lifted a weight. But after Detroit beat up the Bulls in the playoffs, uh, Michael Jordan got heavy on the weights and then became physically stronger. But as he went later in his career and teams were laying so far off of him, he became more of a jump shooter. And that was tougher for him because Michael was not a great shooter. He was a streak shooter. If he was on, he'd kill you. But a lot of teams might try to lay off of him a little bit to see how the wind was blowing with him. If he <laughs> clunks the first three or four, say he clunks uh, four shots or clunks a half a dozen. Well, you're out of the gate pretty well. All right, he's not on his game. He's going to have to find himself. Might start pressing a little bit. We'll just back off a little bit, pray a little bit. (laughs) See how he does, you know. And some teams did try that. I know Bobby Leonard, I once asked him, how do you play Michael Jordan? And he said, that's the way I'd play him. I would never get up on him because I don't want him going to the hoop and doing, getting into his dunk game. So I would see what he's doing. I don't think he's as good of a shooter as he is at other areas of his game. So let's give him a chance. I would back off of him first, see how he shoots the ball first. Then if he if he hits, he comes out hitting his for a few. then get up on him. But a lot of times Michael could be, in certain situations, a slow starter. But Michael Jordan was a scorer. Uh He may not have been the greatest shooter to ever play, but he was a scorer, and he was a good shooter. It wasn't as if he was a terrible shooter. We know better than that. Uh, but shooting was probably not the most dynamic aspect of his game. So that's the difference. As he got older, he took more outside shots. But by that time, he had been through a lot of punishment in the NBA. He had taken a pretty fair amount of punishment in the growth process, particularly teams like Detroit, I seem to remember the Houston Rockets had a guard. I'm forgetting his name. Forgive me.
0: Vernon Maxwell.
1: Vernon Mad, Ma- yeah. <laughs> Mad Max. Very good for you, <laughs> Vernon Max. Mad Max would, you know, really, really uh... take it to him. And they had a philosophy: get up on him, hold him, obstruct him, just really try to take him out of his game. We don't care how many fouls you get. <laughs> Because if you fall out, we'll put the next guy in there. And Vernon Maxwell was a good athlete, a real good athlete. He was. So he could kind of stay with Jordan physically. So that was the goal. Uh, as far as that was concerned but uh but I think Jordan's game did change a little, but he'd still come around every so often If you tried to rock back too far on him, you came up a little bit bang he'd still go <laughs> by you, and uh he'd still treat you to a few uh, great uh very unique plays, as he always did literally it was a situation where it was hard to come up with the descriptions other than just to be honest about it. Some of the stuff that we saw. We had never seen before, and I had seen Dr. J as a very young player in the ABA, and he revolutionized the small forward uh, position, and he was fantastic. I had never seen a player like him. Jordan was kind of of re-experiencing what I had seen when I watched Dr. J in college back when he was playing for the Virginia Squires.
2: That play that I spoke about earlier on in Los Angeles, the... Last four words of your description of that play were, can you believe that?
1: (laughs) What else can you say? Can you believe that? I couldn't believe it. And, you know, (laughs) I saw him do that several times when a player is just doing everything possible, just trying to grab you, hold on for dear life. And somehow a player has the strength and the large enough hands where he could control the ball and somehow flick it, get it <laughs> off of a glass, yeah. and then get it in the basket at full speed on a cut. Uh, you have to be pretty special to be able to do something like that, and uh, probably pretty special is an understatement for Michael Jordan. <laughs> he was an exceptional player by, uh, by any standard. I wish I had gotten to know him, and the opportunity had been such to get to know him better, but we were restricted to a considerable degree of uh, access, we were—we had been told very early to kind of keep your distance, allow him to do his thing. They had specifically set it up. He wasn't going to do any local interviews. He would do the post-game stuff with all of the microphones. Sure, he'd do that. But generally, uh, I was told, do not ask him to do an interview. So I'd see him. Actually, probably none of us as broadcasters were really very close to him. We just benefited from the tremendous basketball skills that he had. I would have liked to have gotten to know him better.
0: Understandably.
1: As I say, uh there is some sadness in the sense that I would have loved to have been able to stick around and see yeah. still more of it. You know, I've had a lot of years in the NBA. It is a privilege to broadcast at that level. That should never be forgotten. It is not a right. It is a privilege. You have to earn it. And uh, I I had the great thrill and privilege to do just that. And uh, I'm very grateful to all of the people who supported me, who made that possible. And I, uh, of course, am very grateful to Michael Jordan for making me look like a pretty good announcer. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Well, Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to have you on the
0: show today and chat about your expansive and great career to date. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure Aaron would be thinking along the same lines as well there, mate.
2: Yeah. As I mentioned earlier on, I was excited to be able to speak to you today, Billy. But when Adam mentioned that you were the broadcaster for the Bulls in the 84-85 season and what that season means in the grand scheme of things, not only for the Bulls, but for the NBA, yeah, my excitement level went up several notches. Again, and you're a wonderful man, and it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you today, mate.
1: Well, it is my privilege, guys, to share time with you. I hope I'll have a chance to do it again and talk about some of these great years. It's been a lot of fun. I am a very privileged person to have had this experience. I think it's great what you're doing. Believe it or not, through all of this time, And all of these years and all of the books that have been written about Michael Jordan, I would like you guys to know that you guys are the first guys who have ever inquired from me as to what the experience was like. And I was there the very first night when Jordan walked out in the West Fowl Circle at Angel Guardian Gym and shook hands with Kevin Lockery before he ever touched a basketball. I remember that moment. Probably that's one of the strongest memories that I have, because I sensed in my mind, you know, this could be the beginning, the absolute beginning of basketball history right here. And I remember the warm handshake that Kevin and Michael had Then Michael going out and doing his thing. It should be pointed out that Michael was not given the starting job. He had to earn it. He came off the bench in his first game in Peoria and scored 18 points in that ball game. And that was the last game that he had to come off the bench, except for perhaps some injury situations. Otherwise, from that point on, I can say I broadcast the only game where Michael Jordan was not a starter. That's quite a thing to have to your name as well. So some incredible memories have been
0: shared. And, and again, thanks so much. And your website can be found at billhazenproductions.com.
1: Yeah, indeed it can.
0: I will put the information into our show notes for the episode so that the listener can check it out as well and look at the, the great work that you're producing to this day.
1: Thank you, guys.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allanness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at In All Ernest. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash In All Anus. Join me next time for another edition of the show.